uh, let me encourage you to open Church Center app. Um, if you need help, there's a QR code on one of the seat backs probably there in your, on your aisle. And be sure you give this morning. Uh, our goal is to get uh, every Cornerstone member to, the, to a place of consistent giving. You can call that tithing or use one of the older words, but a consistent place. When you've got that going, and only then, we encourage our members to give to missions uh, consistently. Uh, if you get that conquered, uh, we'll have you give towards some other projects. We're trying to raise about 20000 to finish the construction out in the foyer and the remodel. Bathrooms look great. The rest of the kids' areas are just fantastic. And uh, we're about ready to lay tile. We'd like to lay it uh, between uh, that uh, Monday and Friday or that Sunday and Saturday of spring break week. So we really need to raise about $20,000 between now and then. Uh, maybe you'll get a... You know, you cash that $100,000 uh, lotto check or tax refund or whatever it is. Uh, just pray that God would bless you. And as he does, you guys just give generously and we'll, we'll knock that out. You can push it right into the building fund. And uh, thank you because you guys are your awesome givers. Uh, let me start with a little bit of a, a common ground with you this morning. A lot of times people ask me what it's like to be a pastor or I'll, I'll use my, we have several pastors, so let me just use my context. What it's like to be the lead speaking pastor, the person who speaks predominantly every, every week. And it's hard for me to explain this to you, so you bear with me, and I'm going to try to say it this way to you. Now I love what God has called me to do, and I think it's an honor and a privilege, and I, I'm definitely, this is not a complaint, but I want to say this to you. The best way I can describe what my role is like these days uh, in, in the church, it's like having a task that's never completed if you want to get into my head this morning that's what it's like it's a scary place in there it's what it's like inside my head this morning uh, let me see if i can uh, equate it to a little but it's not unlike your life uh, there are three words that susan loathes to hear what's for supper uh, she feels the same way about cooking a nutritious healthy meal that's consistently delicious as I do about preparing a message for God's hungry people a message that's nutritious and healthy and hopefully consistently delicious uh, uh, for me what life is like is Sunday is always a few days away I'll finish preaching here in, in, in just a little bit have lunch go collapse in a chair somewhere and the first thing I'm going to think of is in six days Sunday will be here what are you going to serve you know start planning the menu you and God get together and decide what his people need for for Susan and she does a lot of things other than cook supper I'm just using this as an illustration but for Susan she because she's articulated this to me supper is always a few hours the next meal is always a few hours away uh, Tammy, you're a great cook. You know, you make this masterpiece in the kitchen and everybody just like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. And you're like, yes. And then you do the dishes and you realize, oh, in a few hours I've got to do that again. I've got to deliver yet another masterpiece because anything less than what I just served would now be a disappointment to, to my friends and, and, and my family. Uh, at some point we begin to realize as we live our lives that food and pleasure and popularity and position and all the things that the world is living and dying for 
do not bring satisfaction into our lives in a lasting way. And as a matter of fact, if you pursue temporal things, thinking they're going to bring lasting satisfaction, what you get into is a debilitating cycle of endless pursuit. You're chasing something that you can never catch. You're pursuing something that will never bring satisfaction because the very nature of a meal, the very nature of a glass of water, is that its results are short-lived. It has no lasting power, no long-term efficacy to bring satisfaction to your life. And eventually, we all will obtain or attain to something that we've been pursuing. And when we get that thing we've been pursuing, you're going to feel a profound emptiness. Something you've been chasing your whole life, you're going to get it. And when you get it, you're going to feel a profound emptiness when you realize that you've now got it and it has done nothing to satisfy your deepest yearnings. In our stories today, uh, Jesus uses this truth that I'm now articulating to make an appeal to his audience to believe on him as the one sent from God who has the power to give eternal satisfaction to our lives. Now, we polled you this week, and many of you answered the poll within seconds. We were shocked. As soon as we pushed it out, it was like, well, the answers were just coming in. Uh, here's your answers to the polls. You guys up in the booth got this? The most loathsome recurring task, doing the dishes. Why? Because you do the dishes and then immediately start dirtying the dishes. Uh, it's a task that is endless. At our house, we generate trash. I don't know how three of us can generate so much trash. We take out the trash and like five minutes later, it's like it's flowing. I'm like, the trash. And so I take out the trash. I think, I think all of you sneak into our house and put stuff in our trash can. Uh, you guys get the gist of what's happening, though, in our lives. We realize at this stage of our maturity now, we're not kids anymore. And now what we get is we have discovered that unless life has a higher purpose, this kind of stuff overtakes our life and drives us crazy. You realize as an adult, oh, is my life just going to the grocery store to pay the bills to clean the house, to, to change the oil, to do the laundry, to do the dishes? To, is this what my life has become? And at some point as a maturing young adult or more seasoned adult, you take a hard look at life. Uh, this is what we call a midlife crisis for my middle-aged audience here. Uh, you, you may be wondering, what is it? It's real. And what it is is one day you sit down at a, at a stable place of maturity and you look at life and you're like, is this what I'm doing? I mean, is life go to the grocery store so I can bring stuff home so I can generate more trash so I can take out the trash so that I can cook a meal and have to do the dishes? Is this what life is? And what you realize is unless your life is founded in a higher purpose than consumerism and materialism and, and humanism, you're not going to find any satisfaction to life. You're going to be hopeless. You're going to be miserable. Because, yes, these things are necessary, but they're not the purpose of life. 
The purpose of life has to be grounded in something that matters. Taking out the trash just doesn't matter. I mean, it matters because I don't want my house to stink. But I'm not changing the world, okay? I mean, this is not like a noble and high pursuit doing the dishes. It's just something that needs to be done. What I'm saying is your life has to have a bigger calling. These things that we do all the time, without that calling, turn into monotony and will drive you crazy. Jesus is saying to his audience something very similar to this. He said, you guys harvest, you plant, you harvest wheat, you grind it to flour, you make bread, you eat the bread, an hour later you're hungry. You go to the well, you draw water, you drink the water, like 10 minutes later you're thirsty. He's using the same type of metaphors, the same type of illustrative repetitive task on his audience. Uh, and he, they didn't have recycle bins and dishwashers and things like you've got. So he's using this eating bread, drinking water, going through the motions. Have you realized by now that you are not satisfied? You're not satisfied with drinking and you're not satisfied with eating. And drinking and eating heavenly sustenance becomes the language of John 4, 5, and 6. And this eating and drinking something heavenly is a way to express a person's belief in and faith in and absolute devotion to God's King, Jesus Christ. So when you read in just a minute with me about eating bread and drinking water and being satisfied, this becomes a way of saying in these chapters, putting your belief and complete life into submission to the new King, Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying to his audience in the first century, you guys have heard talk about uh, heaven and talk about kingdom and talk about God's rule on earth. It's happening now, was Jesus' message. The kingdom of God has come on earth. The rule of God is here now. He was saying to his audience that God is now walking among you. God is here in the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever God is doing on earth, Jesus Christ is doing it. He is the human expression of God Almighty. And he's offering now, John chapter number 1, to us humans the right to become the children of God by faith in God's King, Jesus Christ. So now I want to tell you three stories. Now I know what my time looks like. I know I can explain two of them. I may not be able to explain the third in my time slot. So if I get to the third, I may just read the scripture and it'll be pretty much self-explanatory. Three stories are going to be told in John chapter number six. As I've told you before, chapters and verses were not in the original Bible. It was written in paragraph form, in narrative form, in story form, in poetry form. There were no numbers inserted to break the text up the way we have it in our modern Bibles. So the ancient people who read the scripture got a much better reading of it than we do. It read like a story to them. John chapter 6 tells three stories all in a row is what I want you to know. They're not separate stories. They're stories that keep building on one another to tell the big story. It's just like scenes that keep mounting 
to, to make the, make, uh, the story come to its, its big climax, okay? The stories are well known. Let's get right to them. The first story is feeding the multitude. John chapter 6, verse 1 gives you the setting. Now, you know this, right, as feeding the 5,000. And if your Bible, if you have a paper Bible with headings at the top of the page, it probably says at the top of the page right there, feeding the 5,000. I'll talk about that in just a moment. John 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, after chapter 5, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, you guys, we have a massive group of this congregation going to Israel in the month of May uh, to the point that we will have to cancel a service because the entire staff will be out, all the children's people. I mean, it's going to be a massive hole here one Sunday uh, in late May, 1st of June. Uh, that group that's going, let me just tell you, you ask me when we get there to point this out to you, okay? And there's a little bit we don't know. We know that Capernaum, uh, Capernaum and, and the headquarters of the Ministry of Galilee is, gosh, I don't know, maybe 11 o'clock. It's, it's north northeast but it's more north than east if you're looking at the sea of galilee be right up here to you guys and it says they're going to get in boats and sail across the sea we don't know if they went south to tiberius which i'll point out to you it's uh southwest shore we don't know if they shot right across the top of the lake to the other side and the east side the shoreline of the sea of galilee is is kind of uh uninhabited it's a uh, kind of desolate i mean it's just it's just uh, hills and wilderness. The cities are all, seems like, on from like the 12 o'clock down to 6 o'clock position is where all the cities are. Over on the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 side, there's not much civilization, just a few little villages over there. Now, we don't know if they shot straight across the top or if they went down towards Tiberias, but they went across the sea. And a great crowd of people, verse 2, followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. John's going to give you a timestamp for the setting. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, let me see if I can summarize some of that setting. The people of Galilee are all hyped up. They're all hyped up on the signs that Jesus has done among the people. John has already told us now in these opening verses that the signs that hyped them up were the healing miracles that Jesus performed. Now, remember where our story is, okay? The timeline of Jesus' ministry. We're in that mainly Galilee ministry. A little Jerusalem is mixed in here as they move back and forth to the feast. But this part of the ministry is full of parable teaching. It's full of miracles, healing miracles and, and, and things like this. And the people are all, they're, they're, they're just hyped up on all of these miracles Jesus has been performing. And the fame of Jesus is spreading across the region of Galilee. And people are starting to follow him. <clears throat> now John does something very clever. And you need to know, uh, as I tell you all the time, the New Testament authors presuppose that you know the Old Testament. They presuppose you've read it, and if they make an allusion to it, that you are instantly going to see the allusion and know what they're doing to you, okay? And so we in the Western modern world probably don't know the Old Testament as we should, 
So some of the illusions slip by without us consciously noting them. Let me consciously note them for you. John has cleverly dropped mosaic illusions on you. And he's done several of them all in a row. You've already been teased by the words in the first three verses. Crowds, signs, mountain, and Passover. And all of these words are associated with the ministry of Moses. Anytime Passover is mentioned, it immediately makes us go back and think of the exodus from Egypt, from slavery, and it automatically makes our mind go forward to think of Jesus' death on the cross. Christ, our Passover, is crucified for us. He wants you to think back to Exodus. He wants you to get Moses in your mind, and it will become very clear before this chapter is over. He wants you to think about a new Exodus happening, and a new Moses is leading a new, a new Exodus. So Moses and Passover become the drop, backdrop of the story. Here's the conflict of the story. Verse number 5. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, this is one of the disciples following Jesus, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Hey, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. Did anybody on the way in see a Whataburger or a Chick-fil-A or a Taco Bell? Did anybody see anything on the way in? Uh, there's a bunch of people coming. We're going to eat a lot of food. What, you guys got any ideas? Let's brainstorm, disciples. Verse 6, he asked this only to test Philip, for Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. That's interesting. It makes me think that I'm encountering some uh, opportunities every day that stress me out, and Jesus has already got it. He's already seen it. He's already figured out the solution. I don't even know the problem yet, and he's already seen how it's going to come into my life and play out. And uh, most likely, he's wanting us to lean into him by faith and trust him for the outcome. Okay? So he's already asked Philip, and he knows what he's going to do. So here's verse 7. Philip answered, let me paraphrase, holy cow, Lord, what are you talking about? Feed all these people. It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for what? For everyone just have a bite, much less satisfy them. And satisfy them is the running theme from John chapter 4 with the woman on the well. Give me this water that I never thirst, she says. And Jesus says, I can give it to you. I can change your life and bring you a satisfaction you've never known. This theme is now just permeating this whole running story. Jesus is like, we need to feed these people. When he came to the well, she supposed him a weary traveler. And she knew it was her responsibility in their culture to be the host and be gracious and give him something if he asked for it. But before the story was done, the tables were turned. And the one who looked like the weary traveler was now the gracious host, giving the water of eternal life to a thirsty woman. You remember how the tables got turned? So now that is a running story. We've not left that story, really. John's just bringing it forward with some new information building on top of it now. Now Jesus is to be seen as a gracious host yet again. Now let me just see if I can build the story and show you all the, all the connection. Philip is like, Lord, now listen, we don't have this much money. If everybody just got a bite, I'm pretty good with math and catering and uh, we would only have a half a year's wages. 
gosh, can anybody, what do you think, what do you think the average wage, I have no idea, in America is, average adult wage is? Gosh, anybody have any idea? Say what? So $30,000, to use your number, 30000 is half of that. $30,000 would not be enough money to buy everyone just a bite of bread. This is a big crowd. You hear what I'm saying? $30,000 is a good bit of money, and it just, you know, we'll just uh, put it into their currency. They're saying a half a year's wages wouldn't buy everybody a bite. Verse 8. Another of the disciples, this is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he now speaks up. Verse 9. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? That's like opening a can of sardines in front of a a crowd of thousands. I mean, really, what's it going to do, to be honest with you? So now Jesus is being presented to you by John as he reflects back on these stories as the gracious host. You'll notice that it says in this text that Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw the people coming to him. This is intentionally said to take you back to John 4 at the woman of the well, where the woman runs into the city and the disciples show up with their hamburgers and Jesus is rebuking them and saying, you're not on mission. The fields are wide unto harvest. Lift up your eyes. It's time to get on mission. And here comes the flood of people from Sychar of Samaria. Lift up your eyes. The white fields are the people that are now running to Jesus, yearning, longing. A lot of people are asking me, what's happening in Kentucky right now? I don't know. Let's watch and see. Let's watch and see. Uh, I have no problem with revival breaking out. Let's watch and see. It's above God. It'll continue. And if it's not, it'll, it'll fizzle. Let the Spirit just show you what He's doing. Let's watch and see. I can tell you this, Americans are starving for God. Because for generations now, the Word of God's been watered down and the pulpiteers, the pastors in the pulpit, have fed their people milk and milk and pablum and junk food and people are starving to know God. They're starving for satisfaction. They've been consuming They've been immersed in materialism. We're the most prosperous nation on the earth. And people are waking up and saying, I'm finding no satisfaction in all of this. They're yearning for something that's real. This is what's happening right here in this text. These are God's people, the Jews. They found no satisfaction in Judaism. It's brought them nothing. No closer to God. No satisfaction either. So now they... Uh, they, they say Jesus lifted up his eyes. You're supposed to see the crowd coming and Jesus seeing the fields are white again. Someone needs to help these people. Verse 9 is curious. Can you guys go back to verse 9 for me? Verse 9 is filled with what we call diminutives in the Greek language or in the English language. What this says in the Greek language is here's a little boy with a tiny piece of bread with two teeny little fishes they're diminutives and it's written in a certain style so that when you read this in the original language you're like it's a it's one of those things telling you this is no way this is going to work out just a little boy with a little piece of bread with just a little bitty fish and here's thousands of people 
diminutive versus multitude of people. Now the resolution begins with a directive from Jesus. I want you to see this now in verse number 10. Jesus said to his disciples, have the people sit down. Now, something's lost on us in English here. Have the people sit down. Here comes the resolution to the conflict. In the Greek language, what John has recorded is that Jesus said, anapipto, anapipto, have them sit down. The thing is, that one Greek word is used 11 times in the New Testament, and every time it means recline, because they reclined at the dinner table. They had low table with pillows, and they laid, and they ate. The exact word used by Jesus when he said to the disciples, he didn't just say, tell the people to sit down. He said to the disciples, tell them to get ready for dinner. Get ready for dinner. Yes, it means sit down, but it's a unique Greek word that means sit down for dinner. It means roll up your sleeves, tuck in your napkin, and sit down on the pillow at the low table they ate around in the, in the Eastern world. Recline for dinner. Now, I love this. They've got no food. They've got thousands of people. And Jesus tells the disciples, get them ready for dinner. You know what I want to ask at this point if I'm one of the disciples? Where is the dinner? <laughs> And what is for dinner? Don't listen, Susan. What's for supper? You know, what have you prepared? Uh, there is nothing. And so now watch, watch the twinkle in Jesus' eye. Tell them to get ready for dinner. Roll up your sleeves, pass out the napkins, get ready for dinner. Let me read the text, John 6, 10. Jesus says, have the people sit down, get ready for dinner. There was plenty of grass in the place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves and he gave thanks and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Not a bite, as much as they wanted. Listen, we were at a wedding last night. Uh, second cousin got married out in Weatherford at, at uh, what was that, Dove, Ran Dove Creek, Dove Ridge, a vineyard, whatever it was. Beautiful venue. They had this massive uh, brisket, uh, sausage, uh, burnt end, baked beans. Is that pique anybody's interest i mean mac and cheese corn with jalapenos i mean we had a spread last night and uh uh you know one plate wouldn't do it uh i'm not talking about me it was jack he went back for a second susan i just was one yeah but they went back twice it was so good you know and you ate until you were satisfied that's what's happening right here. He's not saying, hey, we need to ration out a little crust to you and a little, little piece to you. Let's be... Now, he said, everybody just take as much as you want. It's like a buffet at a wedding. Just go. Just get your eat on. Everybody enjoy yourself. Why? Jesus is being presented as the gracious host with no budget, with no limitations, with no... You know, I can only spend 10000 so you know what I'm saying? Only, you know, only the first two drinks are free, and then it's cash. It's not like that. Jesus is saying, it's all free. I am the gracious host. I've, yes, I've only got some loaves and some fishes from this boy's Scooby-Doo lunchbox, but watch me, the great host, turn that into everything that you need to fully satisfy yourself at this meal. They ate as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Verse 12 
When they all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the leftovers. Not only is there enough to feed everybody, there's more food now than what they started with. Gather the leftovers that nothing be wasted. Verse 13. So they gathered them, and when they were taking up the, you know, making like to-go bags, they had these baskets there, and they filled 12 baskets with to-go food. Doggy bag, you would call it. Uh, uh, leftovers. With the pieces of the barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, the caption for this vignette in the story, in most of our paper Bibles, at the top of the page, it'll say the feeding of the 5,000. Now, that comes from reading in the text where there were about 5,000 men who sat down. But this really messes with your mind because it doesn't mean there were 5,000 people there. It means that the number of the men was about 5,000. Now, I've been in church all my life, and I champion this around the world. The women always outnumber the men in a religious service. I've never seen an exception to that rule. And if we counted heads here this morning, it'd be at least 60, 40 women. So if there's 5,000 men, I know there's at least 6,000 women. <laughs> the Jews had big families. We hadn't even got to the kids yet. So when we call this scene the feeding of the 5,000, we would be better off labeling this the feeding of the multitude, okay? Now this happens at least twice in the gospel, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000. Let's just call this the feeding of the thousands, the feeding of the multitude. Because they're going to feed 10 or 15,000 people. They ate as much as they wanted. And Jesus, being portrayed as the gracious host, says, let's not waste the works of God. Let's take up the leftovers and put them into baskets. Oh, surprise, surprise. There just happens to be 12 baskets of leftovers. Let's be careful with them and let's take them with us. Now, I, I don't know exactly. I'm going to have to do a little guesswork here. Uh, so just be flexible. This could He's already set the mosaic illusion. This could be an illusion to gathering manna, okay? If you know the Old Testament story about bread from heaven in the manna. Or maybe, I like this one even better, maybe Jesus is making a point because he knew what he was going to do, but he just can't get his disciples to really grasp who he is. Imagine trying to get your students to grasp a concept, Heather, and you're trying to teach them math, and they're all around the edge of it, but they just can't quite get it. And so you're trying to find new ways to show them and be creative as a teacher so that your student, ding, ding, the lights go off and they get the concept and they've got it for a lifetime. It's really what's happening with Jesus. They know he's someone. They know they've, they've seen the baptism. They've heard voices. They've seen miracles. They know he's a great prophet. Uh, they think he may be more. They think he may be the Messiah the Old Testament talked about. But they don't really understand that the Messiah is God in a man's body that God is here and God went to his own temple and he's already been rejected and God went to his people and his own received him not and then God talked to the religious leaders who taught the Bible and those people tried to tell God how to do his own business and he met the woman at the well and she said when Messiah shows up he'll fix this mess and Jesus is like you're talking to him so they're having a struggle, as you and I would too. I mean, just imagine your skepticism 
if someone showed up here in Fort Worth and said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I am God. In a visible, bodily, localized expression. Would you have some trouble with that? And they're having some trouble with that. So God, Jesus, is showing them and showing them and coming at it several different ways to get the people, and particularly not all the people, but his disciples. See, I think the problem is the church gets together like this and we want to, what's popular is for pastors to get with their people and dog the world. And I could get a chorus of claps and amens this morning if I stood up here and just trashed, you know, the liberal world and the wicked world and the... But that's not helping anything. The problem is that God's people who do believe in him just barely believe in him. And the people, we, who call ourselves God followers, hardly trust God and are filled with doubt and anxiety. Can I get a witness now? Can we confess our sins here? Uh, We are filled with stress and anxiety. And we're wondering how we're going to survive when God's already told us he's got all that worked out, okay? And, and, and the real issue in America is not that the unsaved are acting like unsaved. Well, what's new with that? The problem is the saved are not on the mission. There's the real issue. And so at Cornerstone, you're going to get a healthy dose of being challenged to get on mission. Now, the issue here is not that everybody doesn't believe on Jesus. His own disciples are not getting it. And so he's going to keep peeling the onion, so to speak, until the light goes off in their head and they say, I got it now. You're really God, aren't you? That's the moments that we're waiting for in the story. Twelve baskets. So maybe Jesus is making a point with the twelve baskets to give each disciple who is unbelieving a basket to carry around. Now imagine, Lord, what are we going to do? A half a year's wages wouldn't even give people a bite of bread. Let me tell you what will drive this lesson home, Philip. Carry this heavy basket for 10 miles on your shoulder. And with each step of your sandaled foot, that wicker basket is going to press down on your shoulder and rub a sore spot. And with every step for the rest of this week, you're going to remember, I'm carrying 30 pounds of bread that came from the Son of God being the gracious... You see what I'm saying? Carry that around for a while. And I think really that's, God does that for us. He does great things in our lives and you're supposed to carry that around for a while. Carry that around and let that weigh on you a little bit and see how it affects your walk. Carry the bread left over from the miracle and then doubt me again tomorrow and see if I can't feed you and take care of you. And tomorrow when you say, God, I just don't know how this is going to work out. What's that you're carrying on your shoulder there, buddy? Oh, 30 pounds of bread. Where'd that come from? Well, you did a miracle and took care of us all. Okay, learn to trust. Learn to trust. God's here. He's got you. Don't worry. I'll provide for you. Yeah, God, I just don't know how it's going to work out. Christians can be so negative. I just don't know how it's going to work Peter, what are you carrying? Well, 30 pounds of bread. You put it. Okay, carry it and shut up and think about what you're carrying and think about how it got there. And think about that little boy Scooby-Doo lunchbox. And think about the sardines that were in there. Now you're carrying 30 pounds. Just think about. I just, let me say it to you contextualize, ladies and gentlemen. This is 2023. What has God done for you? Reflect. Meditate. Think about what God has done for you. 
And because of what God's done for you, you have the confidence and the courage to go into tomorrow trusting him. Has God not brought you this far? Has he not provided for your every need? Isn't your closet full and your pantry full? And don't you have, you know, $100 shoes on your feet? And don't you have a freezer where stuff is expiring faster than you can eat it? Has God not given you a job where you make a good wage? Has God not given you a mind that's brilliant and you can go to work and you can do the work and he's given you strength in your arms and your legs and your body to go and do the... Has God not done for you all that he has done? Okay, then learn to trust him. Lean into that. That's your basket to carry around is what I'm saying. Now, here's the response. John chapter 6 verse 14 And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Now, not God, but prophet. The Old Testament said a prophet's going to come like unto Moses, him you should. Surely this is a prophet come into the world. Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king, by force, withdrew from them and went back up to the mountain alone. You say, what's happening? Jesus is getting popular. And now there's a populist uprising that says, this is a great prophet and look what he can do for us. Why, if he could feed the 5,000 out of a sardine can, think of what he could do. Think of what he could do if we really put some resources in his hands. We ought to make this guy king. He could get rid of the Romans. He could make Israel a superpower. He could bring us to political dominance in the world. He could spread Judaism. We would be the central, we would be the center of the world and the focus of world power. And our economy would be the number one economy in the world. This is the way they're thinking. He'll put food on everybody's table. He'll put clothes in everybody's closet. He'll put a car in every driveway. I mean, this is like we've we've got Midas who can touch things and turn them to gold here. We need to make him king by force. At this point, the crowd's fascination with signs just consumes them. Now, you even see this in the modern culture in which you live. People are fascinated with hype and signs. And their fascination just consumes them. And they say, we're going to make him king whether he wants to be king or not. The people want to take Jesus the prophet and make him Jesus the king. Now I've been telling you that this is why Jesus came is to be king. But not like this. The people want to make him king by force for prosperity and for Israel to be the dominant nation in the world. God wants to send Jesus to be king for a whole nother reason. So they want to make him king. He came to be king, as we'll see in the coming weeks, but not like this. So which leads me to say this. There is something being said here about doing maybe a good outcome, but doing it the wrong way. They want something for a very selfish reason, and God's like, no, I'm not going to do it that way. That's not the way God becomes king. The way, can I give you a spoiler alert right here? The way God becomes king has something to do with a cross and a tomb and a resurrection. Are you with me? We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But they want God to be king without a cross, a tomb, and a resurrection. 
You know, that's very similar to the temptation in the wilderness when Satan tempted Jesus. Bow down to me and I will give you the kingdoms of this world. We can skip the cross. You can be king. That's why you came, isn't it? You see what's happening? Yeah, we can get you to the throne. And Jesus keeps saying that's not God's way. That's not, the, that's not God's mission. That's not why God sent me. I'm going to be king. But I'm going to be king via a cross and an empty tomb in a few days. And that is God's will for my life. And I will drink the whole cup is what he's going to say. I'll drink it to the bitter dregs. Now, the people want to make him king. Jesus withdraws to a mountain. You know why the people want to make him king. Well, yes, heal us of all of our, you know, this one's got dandruff and that one's got scoliosis and this one's got, you know, just walk around and heal us all and give us fat bank accounts and give us prosperity and give us all the immediate relief and help that we want. Sure, that's what they wanted. God has a different agenda, therefore Jesus has a different agenda. Now let me remind you. Jesus didn't just come to be king of the Jews. Jesus came to be king of the world. Now, you remember the encounter we've already had with the woman at the well? Those Samaritans have already come out and said, this guy's the savior of the world. This is the king of the world we're looking at. And they're right, because they got it. He's a Jew dealing with us Samaritans. God's enlarged his scope. That's exactly what's happening and he's come to be the king of the world not just king of abraham's dna not just a baptist savior which would shock a lot of baptists jesus isn't a baptist savior he's the savior of the world he's not a methodist savior he's not a church of christ savior not a catholic savior he's the savior of the world and we may be shocked when we see who all's in the kingdom of God that some Buddhists get saved and some Hindus get saved and some Muslims get saved and even some Baptists get saved. We're going to see a great mix of God's people there as he brings whoever's willing to believe in him by faith into the kingdom of God. He intends to be king, but not by popular movements of likes and watches and shares and ads. John showing us that there view of the jew the jews view of god was a distorted view uh, they thought god was a particular way only for them and they had a distorted view of god god was supposed to fulfill their human desires and god was supposed to fulfill their human plans and god was supposed to make israel great and god was supposed to make their dreams come true at this point in the story, you might want to assess yourself. And you may want to ask yourself this morning, does God exist to answer my prayers and to make my dreams come true? Or do I exist to do the will of God? The Jews had a distorted view. They thought God existed to make their dreams come true. Hear what I'm saying. Americans you may want to reassess yourself. God does not exist just to answer your prayers and make your dreams come true. You exist to believe on him and do the will of God. We forget who's the creation and who's the creator sometimes. That's what's happening. All right, well, we come to a second story. There's number one, and my time's almost gone, so let me move really fast. Here's walking on the sea. The setting is 
right after this miracle of the feeding of the, of the thousands, John 6, 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and they set off. Now we know they're going to Capernaum about 11, 30, 12 o'clock on the dial. We know they're going to that destination and now it's dark and Jesus has not joined them. Now Mark tells the same story, so let me hop over to the book of Mark and read this verse. Immediately after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. It's right over there near Capernaum while he dismissed the crowd. So it's like Jesus said, okay, disciples, I'm about to dismiss. You guys go get in the boat, head, for, head across the sea right now. I'll catch you guys later. I'm going to stay and dismiss the crowd. Go, go, go. I'll give the benediction and the blessing. And Jesus remained behind, and he's going to dismiss the crowd and go up to a mountain and withdraw from them so they can't take him by force and, 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 and make him king. The story picks up in verse 18. A strong wind was now blowing. Hmm. Creates a picture in your mind. It's dark o'clock. A strong wind is blowing. The wind is howling and the sea is now churning. And the text will tell us they are rowing for their lives. Verse 19. While they had rowed about three or four miles. Is anybody in here kayak? Canoe? Row? Paddle? Uh, listen, three or four miles on the water is a long way. I don't know if you've ever gotten to a kayak and did a little, you know, excursion or something. Uh, uh, remember the little excursion we did? Where were we at? Where were we at? Where were we at, Susan? Dominican Republic. With, yeah, and we, were, we, we, we did a, a kayak excursion. What? We went about 100 yards and were panting like we were the most out-of-shape people on planet Earth. We were rowing into the current upstream on a river in the Dominican Republic in kayaks. Oh, I remember that now. They were terrible. They were taken on water. The paddles were horrible. Yeah, I remember that now. But we didn't go 100, 200 yards, no more than a quarter of a mile for sure. And that was about all the rowing we wanted for the day. And I remember we turned them around and rowed the current all the way back and just uh, had a great time. Listen, they rowed a boat across a stormy sea at night Three, now four miles. That's a lot of struggling, okay? Uh, I don't even know how to put that into hours, Steve. You're, 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 a, you're a canoeer. That's hours. Yeah, how much? A mile an hour. Four hours they've been rowing against an angry sea. Their arms are tired. They're out of breath. At this point, you're thinking, like when you row upstream, you know, you barely go anywhere, or upwind in a lake, and they're not getting to their destination. And they're wondering now, hmm, this could be serious. Jesus is not with us. It's dark. They are frightened. The conflict of this vignette reaches its climax not in the storm, but the conflict reaches its climax when the disciples' categories about Jesus are completely demolished in the next minute it's not the storm that's the conflict it's the conflict of categorizing Jesus as something and then understanding he's something else their neat little category for Jesus is about to be blown up when they discover who he really is here's the resolution verse 20 
But Jesus came walking on the water, and he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, it's really important that I show you what Jesus really said. In all the English Bibles, they've translated these Greek words into English, and they've made it work in English for you to speak. In other words, your Bible is speaking proper English. Jesus did not say to them, It is I, I am here that those are not the words that are recorded in the Greek language. I looked at it all week long. Jesus spoke two Greek words to them as recorded by John. Here are the two Greek words Jesus said when they saw him walking on the water in the storm. They are afraid. They said, Who, what is that? Is it a ghost? What, what, we're going to die tonight? This is a, 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 Jesus says, ego I may. Ego, everybody know that word? The Greek word ego? You, I. I may, am. Jesus came walking on the water. They're frightened. It's a storm. He's trying to show them that the Creator is no one else than Him. He is God. So He has sent them on a boat in the middle of the night across a stormy sea, struggling for four hours for their lives. Now he comes walking on the water in the middle of the night, and when he approaches the boat, and they're like, ah, it's a ghost, he says, I am. Things are about to get calm in the next 30 seconds, okay? I am is here. Now, they made it work in English in all the Bibles so that you understand what's happening. I want you to know he said, I am. Now, when he encountered the woman at the well, same thing happened. And it happens all through the book of John. At the woman in the well scene, John 4, 25, the woman said, I know that when Messiah, called Christ, is coming, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, the one speaking to you, two Greek words, I am. She said, when Messiah comes, he'll fix it. Jesus said, I am. I am. I am the Messiah. Now something is building here because John's opened in John chapter number 1 telling you in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and all things were made by Him. John has pitched Jesus from the very beginning as God the Creator. And he has said whatever God has done right here before our eyes is as significant as God stepping out onto nothing and creating the universe with His verbal commands. God has now done a second great work he has come localized in a human body to reveal God to humanity and to fix the mess of creation and to redeem us from our sins. This is what God is doing right before your eyes. Now that's the story that John is telling you. So the scenes are being recorded by John to say to you these words. The I am that is walking on the sea is the same I am that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. This is, Moses is the backdrop of the story. Remember that? It, it sets you up already. So when Jesus says, I am, John wants your mind to flash to the burning bush and see Moses sandalless down on his face and God speaking to him. That's the scene you're supposed to create in your mind. The I am walking on the sea is the same I am who created the world in Genesis chapter number 1. 
Jesus is pulling back the curtain and He is showing us His true identity. God has come down from heaven to establish God's rule on earth. The New Testament Gospels call this the kingdom of God. Synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. The rule of God has come because God has now come in human form. Here's the response, John 6, 21. They were willing to take Jesus in the boat. Jesus, it's you, oh thank goodness, get in. They were willing to take Jesus in the boat, but there was really no reason to get in because immediately they were at the shore. Now I'll invite you to write your own sermon on that one because I don't have words for that one. They're toiling four hours, Steve, on the water. It's a ghost. No, it's the I am. The one who made the waves, the one who made the wind, and the one who made you. Do not be afraid. God is here with you. And immediately, get in the boat, Jesus. And all of a sudden, calm, sunshine, boat is parked at the dock. Can anybody explain that? I can't. And I don't know what the authors intend. I've studied and studied it. I don't even know what to do with that. I have experienced a phenomenon where I'm driving and I'm very tired and I don't remember driving and I'd pull up in the driveway. Has anybody ever experienced that? And it's a little fearful because you're like, did I stop at the stop sign? I mean, did I, do I, how did I get here? And I'm not saying something supernatural happened. I'm just saying we were tired and didn't remember. We were distracted. Don't advise it. In this context, I'm saying they're rowing all night long thinking they're going to die and God shows up to save them. And the next thing you know, he says, don't be afraid, I'm here. And all of a sudden, there's peace and harmony and safety and they've arrived at their destination. I don't want to get too way out there with you because I don't want to lose you. You're right where I need you to be this morning. But I think the whole struggle of human life is a bit like this. And one day, you're with God. And you're there and it's sunshine and peace in the presence of God. And you realize it was all real. It was all true. And there are no more fears left for me. There are no more struggles left for me. God has done exactly what he said he would do. He has saved me. He has taken me the whole journey. You know what really galls me and probably you this morning is that we've been on this journey. Now I've been on it for 55 years of human life. And how slow we are to recognize who he really is. I want to ask you, how long have you been walking with Jesus and you haven't really trusted him? You haven't really let your baggage down. You haven't really unburdened yourself. You haven't really just leaned into him and let him be the Lord of your life. You call him Savior. You know he's forgiven your sins, but you're not yet on his mission. You're not yet obedient to what he's asked you to do. Listen, how long are we going to go down the road of life before we lean into him and say, listen, if I'm going to call you Savior, then I'm going to call you King. You're 100% in charge from this moment forward. Something I should have done the day I received you as my Savior, but I didn't quite get it. Listen, don't go too far down the road of discipleship without really understanding who it is that we're following and that we're serving. Well, they tried to take him in the boat. Matthew records it a little differently. Matthew 14, 33. Then those who were in the boat, what's the word? Worshipped him. And here's their worship proclamation. Truly, you are the Son of God. 
Well, that's what he was trying to get you to understand the whole time. Listen, maybe God, Letty, maybe God wouldn't have to put you and I in the storm and make us row for four hours if we'd be a little quicker on the uptake. Listen, if you're going through a struggle this morning, say, God, can you please help me to wake up and get with the program here so I don't have to go through something in an elongated form. I'd like the Cliff Notes version of this trial, and I'll just put my faith in you and we'll move forward, you know. But they finally are waking up to the fact that he's not just a prophet. He's not just a carpenter from Galilee. The guy they're following is the son of God. He's the creator of the wind and the waves. Now, maybe the words you need to hear this morning are the other words of Jesus. Do not be afraid. Maybe you came here after a really rough week and you got some bad test results, or you're going to go to the doctor this week, or you're dealing with a relational thing, or financial strain, or, or a million other things that we deal with in our lives, and you came in all week after a stressful week, and you come in here this morning, maybe the words of Jesus you need to hear this morning are just these words, do not be afraid. You're God's child, do not be afraid. God is here. He sees you. He knows the circumstance you're in, and may have even orchestrated some of it and he's here and he's got you and you are not alone and you're not without resources and you're not going to go under he's got you do not be afraid because i think all too often you and i are just like these disciples we are fearful disciples jesus has made himself known they have given true worship. You're the son of God. And now we're presented with some irony about God. In God's presence, fear is natural. I think any student of the Old Testament gets this. In God's presence, fear is natural. But such fear is unwarranted. God is terrifying. Scripture reveals this. Yet... When God is embraced, there is no safer place for you to be. A little bit of irony, isn't it? You're in the presence of the Creator, and that can be terrifying and intimidating, but Jesus is like the least intimidating person to be around. Just lean into Him and believe on Him. No safer place to be than the presence of Jesus. For those living by faith in the Son of God, His voice is one of constant encouragement to you and I. He is a constant support in our lives be still, believing hearts. God is here. He's got you. Be not afraid. Here comes the last vignette, the bread of life. I don't have time to explain it. Let me just read it, and I think it'll explain itself. John's now given you two stories to set up the third. The third story is the bread of life story. Here is the setting. John six twenty two. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the shore realized that only one boat had left there, and Jesus wasn't in it. So they're scratching their heads saying, only one boat left, Jesus wasn't in Jesus didn't hear where Jesus go. So they start going in search of Jesus. Here's the pursuit, verse 23. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten. After the bread, the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into other boats and they went over to Capernaum in search of Jesus. What follows now is a story. They're going to find him. 
And when they find him, you're going to have a conflict with six verbal challenges. Here they come. Verbal challenge number one. When did you get here? Let me read it. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they said, Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? Jesus answered, verily, verily, I tell you, doesn't matter when I got here. What matters is why you're looking for me. Paraphrased. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. What a condemnation. People are pursuing Jesus because of what he can do for them. Genie in a bottle. Rub it. Here he comes. Make a wish. He answers. Glorified bellhop. We ring the bell of prayer. Jesus, I summon you to fix this big mess in my life. Bring me health. Bring me prosperity. Get me a job. Get me a girlfriend. Get me whatever I need. Thank you. Ding. See you later. I'll call on you when I need you next. Get back in the lamp. That's kind of a modern Christian's version of Jesus right there. These people are chasing Jesus, and he's like, the problem, the question is not, when did I get here? The question is, oh, you're just chasing me because you want some more free food. You want free stuff. Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life. Now, this is where I started the sermon. Jesus is about to swing back to this food metaphor again work for food that endures which the son of man will give you for on him god the father has placed his seal of approval here comes the second verbal challenge what works does god require verbal challenge number two what works does god require from us john six twenty eight. then they asked jesus what must we do to do the works that God requires. This is a very modern question actually. Still in play. What works must we do today to please God? Well the ultra fundamentalist wing of the, of the Christians says. You know salvation is not of works. Okay they're right. It's only by faith. I got it. But when you frame it this way. Jesus says yeah there is one work you can do. But only one. And it's not really a work. It's belief. Belief is the work you're required to do. So they say, what does God require of us? Watch the exchange. What work must we do to work the works that God requires? Jesus answered, verse 29, the work of God is simply this. To believe in the one he has sent. To believe in the one that God has sent. Who's the one God sent? God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Your work, ladies and gentlemen, is to believe in the one that God has sent. And what are you to believe about him? You're to believe that he is a God in a human body who has come to be the king, not by a Twitter campaign or an Instagram campaign. He's come to be king via a cross and an empty tomb in a few more chapters, okay? He's going to do it God's way, not the way we expect him to do it. We expect that if somebody's going to rule America, they're going to run a campaign that's successful, right? Well, the talk's already started now, right, about the next presidential campaign. We're going to find out who the candidates are. They're going to get their publicity mechanisms, their machines rolling, and we're going to have debates, and we're going to fight it out, and we're going to figure out who the nominees are going to be, and we're going to start a, a, a populist movement to try to get the right people in. God said, I've come to be king and establish my rule on planet Earth 
but I will not do it the way you humans do it. I'm going to do it a different way. I'll tell you how I'm going to be king. I'm going to a cross and I'm going to die. You're like, no, Jesus. That's not the way people become kings. It's the way that God becomes king. Maybe the humans are doing it all wrong. I don't know. But it's the way God intends to become king. This is the story of Jesus. Jesus, what works do we need to do? Believe in the one that God has sent. Dispute number three, halfway there. What sign will you give us? People always want a sign. He just fed them. They still need another sign. So they asked him, verse 30, what sign will you then give that we may see it and believe you? Is there any end to this? If he had given them a sign, they would have asked for another sign. And if he had given them a sign, they would ask for another sign. Because food that you eat, you still need food a few hours later. Do you see what's happening? The things they want and the things you and I often want will not satisfy you. And Jesus is saying, that's not why I'm here, just to put bread in your belly. I'm here to give you eternal life. I'm here to be king of the world. I'm here for a big, big reason. And all you can see is you want a God that's like a genie in a bottle to, to make your dreams come true. So here's what happens. What sign will you give us? And here's their insult to Jesus. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. It is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now I told you it had a mosaic backdrop, right? And here's how you know, because the people now invoke Moses. And they say, we think Moses was somebody who represented God. And God gave our fathers bread to eat in the wilderness. Surely if you're some big deal, you could do a, do a better one than that. Our parents ate manna in the wilderness. Show us something. If you're claiming to be somebody, show us what you got. Do a better miracle than Moses did back there for our parents. Here's Jesus' reply, verse number 32. Jesus said, truly I tell you, it wasn't Moses that gave your parents bread. It was my father. Let me say it another way. It wasn't Moses that gave your parents bread in the wilderness. That was me. I'm the one who did that for your parents. The one who did it's the one you're arguing with. The one who did that for your parents is the very person you're now trying to put to the test. I am the one that blew apart the Red Sea and sent your parents over on dry ground. I am the one that fed them in the wilderness. I am the one that with this finger wrote the Ten Commandments in the stone. You're looking at him. Yeah, but show us a sign. Holy mackerel. Now, you wouldn't want to be Jesus, trust me. It's the most frustrating job ever to be Jesus. Uh, it's frustrating to be a parent and have your children tell you how life works. Can you imagine how frustrating it is to be God and hear your creation tell you how it should be? That'd be like going to the playroom this afternoon, make, make a little Play-Doh man and standing there and suddenly he tells you how to do algebra, that you don't know anything. Like I made you, you know, so you gotta, you gotta, you just gotta really appreciate the, the, 
long-suffering, let's use that word, of Jesus Christ. It wasn't Moses that gave your parents bread. It was me. Conflict number four, I am the bread of life. Sir, okay, then always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I, it's not bread, you numbskulls. Wake up. It's not bread we're talking about. I'm making fun of you because all you want is bread. And I'm trying to say to you, if you wanted eternal life, if you wanted God in your life as much as you want your next meal, we'd be getting somewhere in Israel. But you don't want that. Lord, give us that bread. He's just like, listen, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Watch the word. And whoever, that's the work you have to do. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Harkening back to the woman at the well again. But as I told you, you have seen me, you have seen God, and still you do not believe. For my Father's will, verse 40, is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes will have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Now, we just circled back to John 3 to the conversation with Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And when you see that, you will believe. Jesus just picked the sermon right back up again. He just said the exact same thing. Because they were told in that story in Numbers, if you're bitten by the snake, look and live. Jesus just pulled Moses right back out again and said, whoever looks to me, I'm that example. Whoever looks to me and believes shall live. I will raise him up. Con conflict number five, we're almost there. I am the bread from heaven. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, you didn't come down from heaven. Is not this Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother live over the mountain right here? Isn't this his child of Joseph and Mary? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Well, this is why the Christmas story is so important. That you understand the child that's conceived in you, Mary, is from the Holy Ghost, and he shall be called the Son of God. That's why the Christmas story, getting the details right, are so important because they see Jesus as a hick from Nazareth and say he can't come down from heaven. He lives over in Nazareth. Verse 43, watch Jesus rebuke them. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. Verse 46, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. That's what's happening. They're, they're not seeing it. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who has eternal life. The one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven and anyone may eat, not just Abraham's DNA. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. One more conflict. Here we go. He tells them one more time, 
I am the living bread. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, this is the grossest thing I've ever heard of. He's now advocating cannibalism. No, you numbskull, you thick-headed hearer. I'm not talking to you. He's talking to the Jews. He's telling you something else. He's telling you something else. Then the Jews begin to argue, and Jesus says in verse number 53, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna. This food will not satisfy you. This food will satisfy you. Eat of this bread. It's a metaphor for believing on Jesus Christ. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Which brings us to the closing thought. We now see the crowd divided into two categories. Deserters and disciples. Let me read the last paragraph. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Eat your flesh and drink your blood and we don't even know what to do with that. It's creepy, it's weird, we don't know what you're saying. Who can accept this teaching? Aware that his disciples were grumbling, Jesus said, does this offend you? I see you're offended. Then what would happen if you saw the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? How would that affect you? The Spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. The words that I've spoken to you, they are full of Spirit. The words, they are full of life. And yet there are some of you here, and maybe I could speak in person of Jesus this morning, and maybe there are some here this morning in Fort Worth who still do not believe. What are you going to do? You're being confronted with the Son of God this morning. You have to make a choice. You can't say, well, I'll decide later. No, you will be making a choice in a few minutes. You're being confronted with the Son of God who's come to represent God and establish His rule and His kingdom on earth. What will you do with King Jesus? One more parting shot to the twelve. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They're done. It's now gotten too hard. They're done. Jesus turns to the disciples and says this. You don't want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. It's a great question. What would you say this morning if Jesus said to you, are you going to forsake me too before this is done? You're going to bail on the church? You're going to bail on the mission? You're going to bail on the kingdom of God? Are you, are you in for the long haul now? I, I need to know. The disciples said, Lord, where else can we go? There is only one bread of life. There is only one Son of God. There is only one way through the door. Only you have the words of eternal life. Watch Peter's statement now. Verse 69. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Son of God. Yes. The disciples are getting it now.
and intentionally Peter's getting it. My question to you this morning is, do you get it? Do you know who Jesus really is? Could you say, Pastor, I've come to know and I've come to believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. If you've come to know that this morning, then I want you to receive him as your Savior and give your life to him today. If you've already made that decision to give your life to King Jesus, then I want you to say to him this morning, I trust you 100% if I haven't told you lately. You're completely in control of my life. Help me to, when I worry, lean into you. Help me to hear your words, be not afraid. Lord, in my moments of stress, speak into my inner man, the I am is here. The one who made the water can walk on the water. And the one who made you can take care of you. The one who made this world can open up opportunities in this world for you. I am is here and he's with you. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's have a prayer before we go to our places. John's told you three stories. And he told you these three stories for one reason. So that you would know and believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. This is how Jesus became king. I want you to assess yourself this morning. I want you to ask yourself this question. I think it's very important. Christian, hear me now. Ask yourself this question. Why am I following Jesus? Am I following Jesus because it pays off with stuff and food and jobs and money and opportunity? Am I following Jesus to get stuff? Am I following Jesus because of the blessings he brings into my life? Or am I following Jesus because he's my king? Assess yourself this morning. Are you treating Jesus like he's your genie? To ser- he exists to serve you. and Or are you his child and you're supposed to be on his mission? We just may want to set some things right in our hearts very quickly now. For those of you that are fearful and afraid, lean into his words this morning. I am here. The I am is here. He's got you. Lean into him. Lean on him. Trust him. Be not afraid. Father, your people are bowed before you this morning. And Lord, uh, your children are going to have to unload their cares on you freshly. You've told us, be not afraid. You've told us to cast our care upon you. You've told us you're here. You've told us you'll never leave us nor forsake us. God, help us to believe. And help us to trust and help us to lean on you right now. A lot of people are casting burdens on you verbally through prayer right now. God, take them. Take them. They're nothing to you. Their light is a feather to you. Take them off our lives, Lord, and help us to be light and free and liberated. Lord, help us to go out of here singing and dancing and and merrily on our way. 
Father, if there's one here who has heard the stories and seen and heard and seen, but just today they're beginning to believe, Lord, help them come over the finish line right now. If you're that person, I want you to know you can lean upon Jesus Christ. He'll save you. You just reach out to him this morning. Reach out to him in prayer and say something like this. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I've come to a place of belief. I believe you are the Son of God. You came to be the King of the world, but you died on the cross. You were buried. You rose again. I believe everything the Word says about you. And this morning, I want to acknowledge I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Wash me. Cleanse me. I receive you into my life as my Lord and my Savior, my King forever. You're 100% in charge from this moment. And my life's mission is to be on your mission. God, I pray that you'd bless my life. Give me the courage to proclaim my faith to others. In Jesus' name. Father, you're children now are ready to go have lunch and enjoy our day. God, let us take the truths we've heard this morning about how you revealed yourself and let those truths encourage us and bring us joy as we go to our places. Father, thank you for your love and your grace in our lives. We are so grateful for all you've done. In Jesus' name we pray.